Welcome to Back on the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. My name is Will, also known as Folk Punk Dad, and today I get to speak with Brooke Pridemore. Brooke is a musician and songwriter based in Brooklyn, New York. In this episode, we talk about Brooke's experience in the anti-folk and folk punk scenes in the early 2000s, and how these experiences inspired them to push themselves musically and personally, leading them to where they are now. We also discuss The Reflecting Skin, Brooke's 2006 record, which they are in the midst of repressing. And at the end of the episode, we close with some stories about Brooke and Pepe and Pat. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to listen to the full unedited version, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash back on the grind. Brooke, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Oh yeah, thanks for having me, Will. It's good to be here. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. So we got a few things to we can talk about today. Um you you're repressing an album soon. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought we could definitely talk about that. We can talk about um the early days of folk punk. Pempe sent me some questions that might be good to to dig into. Okay. And uh anything else we wanna chat about. Cool. That comes up. Cool, yeah, that sounds good. Um so what if we started with uh, some of the early days of the folk punk scene? Sure. So who were some of the people you first met in the folk punk community? Um, well, I, I moved to, I moved to New York in 2002 and to make, uh, it's funny because I, now I tell people I moved here to be like Lou Reed and um, I have kind of succeeded in that. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I came out here and I knew my favorite band were all from New York. I didn't know anything about going on tour or playing music in front of people. Really. I had been playing music in front of people for, for all of college, but, um, I, I just knew I wasn't going to do anything except play in the bars in my college town if I didn't leave and go to a city. So I came out here and about a month before I moved to New York, somebody gave me, um, somebody gave me Jeffrey Lewis's first album. Last time I did acid, I went insane. And and it was at my radio station because they were like, this is not good. They were like, this is not going to go into rotation, but maybe you'd like this for your program. I was hosting like an alt country folk program on my radio station i i was very into ryan adams and the bloodshot label at the time and trying to write music like that and so i i put this i put this jeff lewis record on and you know if you're familiar with that first record it's it's you know very low-fi low fidelity recording and um he's He's an adept guitar player, but not a particularly gifted one. And, you know, it's it was all about the lyrics, which were kind of clever and and also like, you know, told a pretty deep story and he was verbose and and uh, the record was messy and weird and and fun. And it was on this kind of big label. And I and I kind of listened to that and I was like if this guy if this guy can find a place to put his feet down in new york uh, i'm probably going to be fine and that was when i heard anti folk for the first time it took me like a year after getting to new york to find my way to the sidewalk cafe and to find my way you know i i i kind of floundered for a while playing these showcases and stuff and then and then i i Somebody connected me to the sidewalk and I went over there and started doing the open mic night. First time I ever went down there, it was like the first five performers were like Kimya Dawson and Langhorn Slim and uh, this guy, Joey Dead Blonde Girlfriend, who the first time you hear you ever anybody heard Joey, it was like, wow, that guy's punk as fuck, you know. Um and it was this crazy, then this guy, Thomas Truax, that had his own instruments he built himself. And 
I was just absolutely sucked in by by the sidewalk open mic. I had been to so many open mics before that, and um, you know, it's like everybody would get twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, and they do Dave, uh, you know, twenty Dave Matthews band covers. You'd hear the same song five times in a night. And me and my friend were the only people writing our own songs in those situations. And uh, our songs were not good. Um, but I, I always thought of myself as like above everybody else because I was writing my own tunes. And then I got to New York and I had these, these crappy, like these alt country tunes that I'd written. And, uh, and like, I saw all these people and I was like, Oh, I've got to step my fucking game up. And, and like being in that environment forced me to like actually learn a craft of songwriting. I say all that, you asked me about folk punk and I say all that because that, that was kind of the start of it. And I, I, um, I had played around the same time. I had played a show in Michigan with a band called this bike is a pipe bomb. I don't know if you've ever heard them or if you've ever, I know the name. Um, yeah, a lot of my favorite stuff from that, the the specifically the early days of folk punk, like hasn't it. It's not that it hasn't aged well. It's just like it's it's forgotten. It's not the old stuff people are talking about. And so I had played with them, and they had given me their CD, and they were super weird, and they were they were older than they were old. They were probably like thirty. You know, when I, when I met them and like, um, and they were touring and they were like, oh yeah, we don't have a radio in our van because we can't afford one. And it sounded so like weird and terrifying and hilarious, uh, to like have all this crazy shit going on. And so around the time that I was discovering the sidewalk and like trying to learn how to write songs, um, and, and like letting that stuff in. I I just looked at this old um, pipe bomb CD and it said Pl Planet X Records and I and it said planetxrecords.com or whatever the website was and I went um, I went on that website and it just had like twenty CDs for sale and they were all like five bucks and so and and it was like it said well you know send well concealed cash or a money order to this address and and so i just like put 40 bucks in an envelope and and uh and sent him this uh you know to this to this address and i was like i might be flushing 40 dollars down the drain but you know like two weeks later i get this package back with like 12 cds in it and it's all these bands you know uh like defiance ohio and ghost mice and and uh i don't even know what else was in it probably the other pipe bomb albums and and like and so i had this you know this big digest of bands to get into and it was all so exotic that everything was five dollars and everything was um you know it was all super like piss poorly recorded and um and these and so i just like sort of dove into this stuff and i had been for a few years calling the music i made polk uh which is to say <laughs> punk folk and i didn't know i thought it was an original idea i mean I, for for years i was like i was like yeah i make polk and uh and people would be like i don't listen to polka and I'm like, nah, bro. Like, you know, so it, it was, I needed some branding and the branding that I found <laughs> was this, like, this, like folk punk, uh, you know, this scene that was already this, you know, genre that was already flourishing. And, um, through a series of circumstances, I, I lost my job, which facilitated me being able to hop in the van with my friends and go to the first Planet X Fest in Bloomington. And that was my first time in Bloomington. And nobody, there was no money spent that whole weekend and everybody was just chilling. And um, everybody knew each other and they were just around. And I like saw punk, like, like real actual fucking punk for the first time in my life that weekend. And mm. um, 
we, you know, I, I was like, oh, like you don't have to, you don't have to get like a fancy manager to go on tour. You don't have to get, you know, you don't have to be in a bus. You don't have to, um, like you can kind of just make friends and call some friends up and go like, Hey, like this date. And I had been on one tour at that point and I was trying to, was working on booking the second one. And we, we like got there, but you know, really seeing community it really seemed like community uh mm-hmm. in in that first that one weekend i didn't know what community was before then um we we learned a lot of stuff in later years about planet x records and about the guy behind planet x records that is uh sort of gives lie to the idea that they were a community but um it, it in practice in that weekend, at least from my perspective, it seemed like, um, you know, it was a bunch of people pushing each other forward, um, and and that's what I wanted more than anything. You know, I wanted to be a part of something. I I I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be well regarded. Um, but like more than anything, I wanted people to be near and share that, that warmth with, you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. and, and the funny thing is I never really, I never really got, I was funny. I was listening to Mike Miller on your show a couple of weeks ago and it was like, I never really got into that crowd. I never really became a part of it except for with ghost mice, obviously I played with them all the time and I made, I made a split with them. Um, and, and I never really knew any of those other people more than just to say hi to. Um, and it was like, there, there have been a few points in my life when I've arrived in a place and into a, into a scene and it's, I have kind of perceived the attitude to be like, no, we've got all our geniuses. We've got all our members of this club. Like we're all fully booked. And, and I have had to go and find other people. And so I went and found other people to play with. And so that was just like a flashpoint. And, and through touring and through playing shows, I slowly became, you know, friends with lots and lots of other people. And a lot of that stuff from that era has been forgotten. A lot of my favorite music from that era has disappeared uh, into the annals of time. The the upload your mp3s to this website thing was a very short-sighted um was a very short-sighted way of putting out music because now it's all gone um you know and and the folk punk archivist is doing a real good job of finding all those old cdrs and making sure some of that stuff can be preserved but the temporary nature of stuff is it was almost like no wave the temporary nature of that music was just like so much of it is gone. Some people I can't even remember their names or I remember the name of the act, but nothing else. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I was very lucky in those years because people were like, Oh, you can just put music out on CDR. And I met, I got hooked up with a small label here. And so I did a poetry slam and I met this guy named Dan and Dan was like, I like your poetry. And I went, thank you. You should come hear me sing songs. I'm opening for this band King Missile next week at this at this venue. And he came down to see me play with King Missile, which is like, I don't know if you've ever listened to King Missile, but they're like old. They're like older than anti-folk New York downtown mm. music. Like they're like from the first era of that. But they were on a major label for a second. They had a song called Detachable Penis. And uh, he's written a lot of other great songs. But they, um, me playing with this guy, with this band, led this guy to go, okay, I'll come down and see that. And he signed me to his little label. And, and, you know, one thing that we stressed on that label was we didn't do CDRs. So, like, my records my early records well i mean my first two cds i've got 500 copies of those cds here in my house like you can have as many copies as you want of those first two i don't really care to talk about them but 
you know, the third, the third and fourth albums, the ones that I made with him, like we made and sold a thousand like legit CDs and, and like we insisted on recording them well and preserving, you know, using the preservable format. And I, you know, many other people have disappeared entirely just because of that short sightedness. Um, but we started working together and we started touring together and you know, we built our own little, you know, I, my own little world was built. You know, I, I, I toured with the label guy for a long time until he couldn't tour anymore. And we'd always tour with another act because we would have killed each other. Um, you know, from traveling that, that tour is kind of funny. It's like, you got to kind of get away. You know, you've got to kind of step away once in a while. Hey, I'm going to take a walk around the block. You know, Hey, I'm going to go mm -hmm. get a cookie. Uh, Hey, I'm going to, I'll be back. Like, don't worry. And kind of walk away. And, and not everybody has the temperament for that. You know, there's, there's, um, mm -hmm. and not a lot of people have the temperament for doing it long-term. Um, mm. So we got, we got hooked up and I knew these people, I knew Planet X and I knew um, all those bands around it. And, you know, I we knew them enough to say hi. And then it was like, you know, we had to had to keep looking for, you know, building our own little, my own little community, my own little fiefdom, mm. you know. How would you say, you talked a little bit about how anti, the anti-folk um, scene and people influenced you. Would you say that the folk punk community influenced you too, maybe in a, in a different way or a similar way? Yeah. Um, yeah, very much. And like what I, you know, what I said about community was a big deal there. That was a big, uh, that was a big thing to see. And, and in both of those crowds, it wasn't, uh, it was never, the point was never like product. The point was process. Mm. And so it was like, the mm. point was I made this thing, check it out. You know, it was in both places. Um, it was more like a, a, a writing workshop, you know, you'd, you'd see, um, I'd play with, you know, Johnny, I played with Johnny Hobo and it was like, Johnny Hobo had a new song. And then like three months later, I played with Johnny Hobo again and he had the same new song and he had tooled the verse a little different, you know, and it was the same, mm -hmm. like, you know, it was like this, uh, it was this constantly evolving thing. And, and, and I dig that. Like I, I've never understood Jesus Christ. Have you looked at like the Harry Styles set list? Look at, look at the set list, set list FM for Harry Styles. He did 14 shows at the garden and it was the exact same set every night. How do people do that? Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> how do people do that? It's like, you, you like, I don't even like, I don't even like to breathe the same way. You know, and so like that was very that was something very much from both scenes was like, you know, it was it was all about what was going to happen. It's what was happening next. Is there something that you miss most from those days? I wouldn't say well, no. I wouldn't say something that I miss most, but I wish <laughs> Do you know that you know that Bush song? Uh I think it's Machine Head where he says, uh if I had my time again, I'd change it all. Uh, I, I think if I had that time to do again, I would have tried to be happier in it. Um, mm. I was, I was drinking an awful lot, uh, in those years and, and then later not drinking, but regulating with other chemicals and behaviors. And, and, um, I was, I was struck sober after a time. Um, and some of that stuff was some of the craziest experiences of my life. And I wasn't exactly present for a lot of it. Um, and, and there I have a lot of regret about that. Mm, yeah. I, I can definitely relate to that myself. Sure. Um, my own sobriety journey too. Um, how would you, what does, sobriety and music look like for you now do you find that um 
your music changed after you got sober or what did, what did that look like? Well, or maybe just evolved. Well, I, I, I got sober the day after a six month long tour. I was on, I was out for mm-hmm. six straight months and I was out for a lot of the wrong reasons. And I was drinking an awful lot. And, um, I, you know, put no light into the world in that time. And when I got home from that trip, I tried to kill myself and failed. And that was the thing that struck me sober. I was like, that was the, um, Mm. that was when the unmanageability of my life was clear to me. And so I, um, I did the, you know, the things and got help and, and, uh, um, I stayed off the road for five years and, um, Mm. I, I made my fifth record, which was already in the process of being, it was already mostly written when I got sober and I finished it over that first year and then I recorded it Mm. and I didn't write songs for a while. I, I didn't write anything. I was like, these are my last songs. And, and that's, that's an, poignant record for me because it's it's um it's hard it's not it's it's a i I, i'm very proud of that record and it's also a little bit tender to listen to because uh a lot of the subject matter of the songs is you know i was really heartbroken about somebody and i just kind of laid it all bare and uh and on the other side of it i was extraordinarily angry when writing those songs and i i wrote these you know these very very angry songs and um it's you know i i really thought for a long time that that was my last statement and i recorded it Mm. and i made music videos for all the songs on it and it was this whole years-long process and i stayed off the road for a while and i really believed in that first couple of years that i was um that i was going to uh that it was that was a chapter of my life that was behind me and i i was like okay if i'm you know, I got to think about what else I could do. And I considered going back and, and I worked a job and I, I did, you know, all this stuff and I stayed put and I, I built a record collection and I saw shows and I, um, you know, did all kinds of other stuff. And I had a whole life in that era. And I was like, I, if I'm going to be, even if it means I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to be the best accountant I can I can possibly be and and you know when i now i know accountant can be an, a colloquialism for people who uh make and sell their own pornography online and no i am talking about actual working in an accountancy office like actually doing math for a living and um i was about to to marry somebody and i was like thinking about going back to school and thinking about you like really settling down in a really profound, you know, definable way. And, and then I started writing songs and, and it was like, right as I started writing songs that that relationship ended. And I remember like starting to write songs about how I felt about that relationship. And then I went, I, and then it was like, it was this complete 180. And I was like, I don't want to write girl songs anymore. I don't like these people don't care that I wrote these songs about them. It's, it's not, there's no catharsis. It's just me being a, you know, uh, uh, it's this extraordinarily heteronormative, like prick behavior to, to use my, my voice to, say mean things about people mean things or tender things or anything else about another person and and so there was really this retrenchment for me and then i wrote songs and i wrote metal is my only friend which was the next record that didn't come out for a long time and all those songs are about finding god are about finding god and needing to find god and needing to find catharsis and needing to get, I always think of it as getting closer to God or getting closer to higher power. If you need to say higher power or, 
you know, my first higher power was Dennis Hopper. I prayed to Dennis Hopper for two weeks because they said, you got to pray. And I'm like, okay, I prayed like, it's like, fuck all of you. I'll pray to Dennis Hopper. And, and that supplication of will got me sober. And then I just shortened it to God. And, and, and that became like for a while there, like, that's what my songs were about. That's what all the songs on metal is my only friend are about. And, and the first song I wrote for that record was in 2012 and it's called I Can't Change. And it's about halfway through the record. And then the last songs I wrote for it were, um, actually it's the last three songs on the record, Guitar Bomb, Carrie Fisher, and No Tiger Ever. And it was like, um, it was like, it's funny because like at the beginning of the record, it's the, the, the statement is almost like, I don't have any fucking answers and I need answers. And at the end of the record, it's like, I still don't have any answers, but I'm like, okay about it. You know, at least I found this thing that works. Trust me, I know we're, we're recording here and, and, you know, I'm leaving some stuff out and, and I am, this is going to be broadcast for people to hear, but like, I don't really walk around telling people that my songs for a time were about having to find God. Like I really would rather them listen to my songs than, than worry that I'm going to try to convert anybody or make other, make other people like be like me or anything. And, and, and like, Mm. I, you know, the beat is always the most important thing. The beat, the melody, you know, you've seen me play now. I don't even play guitar most of the time anymore because the, I want to dance. I want to dance and I want to jump up and down and I want, you know, I want there to be kind of a spectacle. Even if it's silly, you know, even if it seems goofy, like I want to be, you know, I want to be engaging as a a performer and, and, and that'll change eventually too. Um, And like the, 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 the method of making that next, you know, metal is my only friend was the first record I made fully sober and um you know and i had time to sit there and really think about what i didn't like about you know what i wanted to change about the earlier stuff that i did and i had made five records wherein i played acoustic guitar acoustic guitar and ukulele and on on ukulele on one and a little bit of piano on a rudimentary piano on another and then gory details i was like i'm only going to play acoustic guitar on this record and the result is we bring in these other people you know we bring in this drummer and the drummer comes up with parts for the record and then never plays them again and you know the the bass player spends four hours in the studio playing the bass on this record and then never plays those songs again and so as i approached making metal is my only friend i was just like i had a i had a lot of time to think about it and i had a lot of energy uh and i had nobody to be accountable to that old label had closed nobody was beating down my door to get me to make my sixth record one of one of my best friends advised me that i didn't even need to make another record i could just walk away from it and you know so what i landed on was I was like, I want to make a record where I play all the parts myself. I want to play, you know, I'm, I'm a competent drummer. I'm a, you know, I'm pretty good at it. I'm a competent, you know, I'm not a great lead guitar player. I'm, uh, I considered myself to be a terrible bass player. Um, and so I was like, as, as, as much as I can, I want to make this record without other people. I want this to be like a Skip Spence record. And we brought my friend Charlotte Kahn in to play drums on two songs. So so the the most complicated songs on that record, that's Charlotte Kahn playing drums. And uh and other than that, me and me and this producer and Charlotte you know, made everything. The three of us made every sound on that record. And I made almost all of it. And, you know, I'm so happy that we did that that way because, uh, you know, I, I didn't have to tell anybody, hey, you're overplaying on this. Like, 
hey, that's not the point, you know. And we made this we made this record and 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 by the time it came out, it was you know, it's funny, the record was called Metal is My Only Friend. And I went through a I went through a long phase where I didn't have any friends. And then it was like the record came out and now and I don't even know how it happened, but eventually it was like I was like, I need to have friends. And it turned out I needed to start talking to people. And I just started talking to people and now I have friends. And and after that we made um you know, I was making another record with Vin and, and this guy Vin who produced Metal is my only friend. We were making something and I didn't like it. I didn't like the songs. I didn't like the way I played them. I brought in Mikey Erg and Jay Nixon to play drums and bass on it. And I and I liked the way they played, but I didn't like it wasn't hanging together for me. And I a funny thing happened. COVID happened and uh Vin and his wife had to uh they they popped the country she's from new brunswick so they went up to new brunswick and they've lived up there for like three years now and uh so he wasn't around to work and i you know and in that downtime at the beginning of COVID, i wrote a whole other album and new songs and you know i had become friends with this cat ben and uh ben's in a band called bodega and and when when we started talking, Bodega were were famous to me. I had seen them. They and they were playing some big shows at the time, but they were like, "Holy fuck!" Like I want to be like Bodega. And uh, and I thought you couldn't talk to people that were in bands that you like. You know, I thought that you had to be shy around them. And I'm 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 a pretty shy person. And by nature, and I do, I work really hard to get out of that because it always makes me come off like I'm a dick. And I swear I'm not a dick, uh, but I might come off like that. And uh, so Ben invited me to football, and they watch football every Sunday. And I started going over and watching football. And then Ben asked me to play a show. There was a doubleheader, two games. He's like, You should play between the games, play in our living room. And I, I played in their living room and like a week later, COVID happened. And so both of our tours ended and he was like, hey, do you have any new songs? You should come over and record an album. He's like, I just want to learn how to record an album. So then he produced Glad to Be Alive. We we scrapped all the, we scrapped the record that I had been, I scrapped the record I had been working on. And he just recorded Glad to Be Alive in he in his partner's bedroom, you know, with just like he's got a, that that two channel interface that everybody makes fun of. It's always in the memes. And that's we just did it on that and his desktop. And we made this record together. And, you know, I played all the acoustic guitar and about half the bass. And he played the other half of the bass and the lead guitar. And, you know, it's like once it, we kind of split it kind of evenly. And then his partner, Nikki, sang a little bit on it. And, it was just the three of us. And, um, you know, at the end of it, you know, whereas metal is my only friend. It was like, I have to be the only voice on this, this next record. It was like, Oh, like if I want to do something different, I have to, you know, maybe I have to let this guy in. And, and, you know, it turns out we're, you know, we've got so much in common and so much to talk about that. It was, it was extraordinarily easy to work together. And, you know, he did give me final say on everything. And there were a few things that I let him rearrange because, you know, he had a vision that was bigger than mine. And, and we made this, but I couldn't tell you what those things were today. And so I let this guy in and, and it got different and watching him record me, I was like, Oh, this guy, this guy doesn't really know anything. He's just, just pushes buttons until it sounds good. And, I could do that. So I bought the same two channel interface and an SM7B like you're talking into right now. And, um, you know, a, an OP1. And I've started, now I'm working on the next thing that'll come out eventually. Um, and I'm producing it myself and playing all the music myself because, you know, that's what we do is just build the next, you know, now the next thing, you know, like what's the next thing look like? And so 
that's how things, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, back in the day, it was like write 11 songs, make a record. That's the new record. But a couple of times I did that and it was like, I'm listening to the record after it's released and I'm like, man, this shit sucks. Like, you know, and, and it's, I've learned that maybe there's a little more work to be done in, and I have to be a little more vocal about exactly what I want. And in order to do that, I have to build opinions on exactly what I want and, and also know that there's some creation, there's some process to go through to working with other people. And, uh, you know, it's all about evolution. Will. It's all about growth, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like some of the things that you felt in those early days of the anti-folk movement of, oh, I need to step up my game. Right. It sounds like you've continued to try to step up your game, right. you know, not just in music, but also in, in life and in the personal changes you've made along the way. Very true. Uh, very true. Um, I, I have this thing with, first of all, I've had to learn that bands are not, the bands I love are not making records only for me. I had to learn that. I think that's a very, very big part of my selfish nature. You know, when I heard they might be giants as a kid and, and I, that's where really where I discovered music. And I, I, I learned over time that when you go see, when I go see their concert, you know, I'm not the person in the room that loves them the most. We probably all love them equally. We're probably all as excited. And so, and it's, a, and you know, and so to have like a, that's a very parasocial relationship. I'll never be friends with those guys, but I can I can meet them and not make a big deal. I've met John Flansburg now and not made a big deal out of it. But what happened eventually was they made a record that I didn't like. Um, they made a record that I like. They they made a couple records that I was like, okay, like it's got the hits. You know, Mink Car when I first heard it. Of course, I bought Mink Car on nine eleven and it had hits. And I was like, it is a little floppy. It's got a little a little wobbly for my taste it's not like the first five records and and you know over time i've really grown to love it and then they made that first kids record i'm like okay it's it's got some stuff on it and really with the next one i was like oh they fucked the dog on this one and and it meant i i wrote the i wrote that band off for like a good decade and and i really took it as a personal affront that they made records that i didn't like and um, and I, I've had, and it's happened with some other bands, some other big ticket, I, I won't mention any other big ticket bands that that's happened for me with, but, uh, I have come to realize, you know, first of all, I have grown. Now I've gone back and listened to all those records, all those They Might Be Giants records again, and they're all very, very good. Um, and, and I'm, you know, maybe I was like 35 when I started listening to when I started going back and listening again, I'm like, Oh, this is all great stuff. I just, I changed, you know, it's like a new, they might be giants record doesn't hit for somebody who's, you know, really into pig destroyer at the moment, you know, or really, you know, if I'm, if I'm listening to the best records by the Wu Tang clan, you know, a second tier record by a band that's been around for 30 years, isn't going to hit the same way so i've had a little growing up to do but i also believe that if that a thing happens with lots and lots of artists that you know you see it really in the in the the big the stadium kind of or arena kind of stuff where it's like i I will give you one oasis you know oasis where like that those first two records are great and then what i clearly saw listening to their next records was Oh shit, we've got, we need to go on tour again. Time to fart out another record. And it's like that it's like that farting out another record that I that's like death to me. Now, nobody needs to at me about how great the Ladder Oasis records are. I'm sure you love them. I'm not going to go check them out. Uh I'm going to listen to Champagne Supernova when it comes on and be happy with that. And um but that that has always felt like death to me 
when when a huge fan of an act is like have you heard the new record and then they're like it's not bad you know it's not bad hey man it's not bad like you know what you know what not bad is not good like you know um and so that's been that feels like death to me man yeah i can i can relate to that myself with with a few bands but only really recently um and it's a it's a strange feeling to be like oh they're not my favorite band anymore that's weird they were my favorite band for 15 years <laughs> who's uh who's a big ticket for you like that well well uh to be honest the mountain goats i have been a huge fan. I'm still a huge fan yeah. of the Mountain Goats, uh, but I got into them when I was 16, and they stayed my favorite band for a long time. But their some of their recent stuff just hasn't been just the last, mainly the last album, or um, just hasn't been clicking with me in the same way. And you know, I kind of wonder if I might experience something similar to you, where a few years down the line, I might go back to some of these records and be like, oh, I actually love this. Um, but yeah, so th that's been kind of an odd experience. Like I've had a few opportunities to go see them where I haven't gone to see them. <laughs> that feels kind of weird because they're one of the bands I've seen the most. Sure. Um, but, you know, that's that's normal for things to to shift and change like that. You have a song on the reflecting skin called John Darnielle. Yeah. Um, and I listened to it, and I was wondering, is it called John Darnielle? Because it kind of sounds like a song John Darnielle might write. Um, yeah. I can or why? It. Yeah. I, I will start <laughs> by saying, for the first several years after I made that record, that song was called John Darnielle. Um, and, uh, right. <laughs> and, and then I finally I heard a dude correct it. And, and I'm, I'm like, you're right. It's called John Darnielle. Um, and that's, uh, I wrote this song, that record is, is wholly influenced by my being on the road for long stretches of time for the first time. So mm. there's lots of things on that record, like, like name checking things like Rio Puerco. And we were just driving through Arizona and we drove, there was this sign that said Rio Puerco which is just, I, I guess that would be Pork River or Pig River or River of Pigs or something like mm. that. And it was just this dry gulch. So a lot of that record is full of that stuff. And I wrote John Darnielle on that tour. And and I wrote this song and I got home and I started playing it. And um, somebody was like, you know, that song really sounds too much like a mountain goat song for comfort. And, and I was like, they were like, you might want to do something. And, and, and I was like, you're right. I will do something. It's called John Darnielle. And, um, <laughs> and, and then when we recorded it, I was like, that was the song for whatever reason, that was the song. There's, there's Omnicord and ukulele. And I put towels on the drums uh and there's there's no that's not bass that's baritone guitar on that and i was like very willfully let me make like the weirdest sounding combination of instruments um oh it was because we were working in this we this is the last time i worked in the studio and th and this guy was a really nice guy but he was an 80s guy he was older than us he's probably like 60 now and he had a different idea of what sounded good. So the first record I made with him, I was like, can you get an accordion player? And he was like, you don't need an accordion player. You've got the patch on my keyboard. It's better than an accordion. And I was like, okay, well, so we just won't have accordion on this record. You know, like, and the next time we went in, I brought an accordion player and I brought my ukulele and I brought my on the court and I brought the stuff that he didn't know dick about. And I was like, we're going to use all this stuff. And and we really found a happy medium between his ideas and my ideas on that record. And but but um, 
that guy got really mad about the towels on his drums because he was like, I would have got you. Those are the nice towels. I would have got you the shitty towels. And like, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, I made this, I made that record. Uh, and like, and like made that, and I've done that a lot since then. I've got a song called Keith Richards and Charlie Watts. And, and, and sometimes the song will reference the person it's named after song for Linda Perry is another one. And, and, uh, and, and other times they, they won't. And it's like a way to let people know what I'm listening to. And it's like a way to also give something an esoteric title without having to think of an esoteric title. And, um, uh, and it's also like to get, you know, like it's another way of sharing information. That one kind of backfired on me because my, my next record really sounds way more like the Mountain Goats than, I, you know, I kind of wish I'd toned it down. And after that, I did tone it down a lot. But people, people really, um, you know, it became a dig. Somebody yelled at me at a show, I'll play another Mountain Goats cover after my, uh, after, after an original song, you know, like, you know, and it was really, you know, and then, and then evolution kicked in and I changed into something, it changed into something different. And, and, you know, I got way too into smog for a while. And then I got way too into swans for a while. And then I got way too into, you know, in early COVID, I had another ICP phase and, you know, like, um, it's like all, you know, and then it all just becomes part of the perpetual stew. You know, it all just becomes part of the the nature of influence. Sort of weird. I'm not listening to much music right now. I'm, I'm, I'm like trying really hard to listen to new stuff every day and, and, and then just being like, I think I just want to listen to Nilsson Schmilson or, or, you know, those couple, certain couple of later Harry Nilsson records. I'm like, I just, I don't want to be bothered right now. Um, and so that'll change too, you know, like that'll, that'll grow too. Um, but yeah, the mountain goats, that was a profound, that was a profound influence for a long time, for sure. And I, I am still excited to see Dean and to know that they're doing new music. Something Pepe would have brought up if if he could have been on the call today. Um, you've mentioned a birthday cake to him, and uh, Pepe mentioned an abandoned factory. So yeah. Could you tell the stories behind these things? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's it's funny we uh, we got pretty far without mentioning Pat, uh, but I am going to mention Pat now. Uh, Pat and I met because, okay, so so when Ghost Mice came out to PA to play on the Reflecting Skin, they booked a tour around it so it didn't cost them any money. They booked a tour out here to play on my record. Um, and like, you know, I, I've already said like a lot of other things about Dude Came to Light and I'm I, I regret uh, I regret not knowing earlier, but he was a dear friend of mine for a long time, and it would be a shame to try to hide that. And uh, he came out to be in this work in the studio with us and booked a tour around it. And then they invited me to play a couple of shows with them on that tour. And one of them was in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, at a place called The Nest. That's where I met Pepe. Uh, I was like, hey, I don't have any good connect for shows in Connecticut. Can you can you help me? And he was like, yes, you should call this guy, Tom Frampton. Tom Frampton is going to uh, put a show on for Mark Gunnery. I called this guy Tom Frampton. I've never met him again. I played his house in New Haven. Um, I go up there. Uh, with another guy from here in New York, Frank Hoyer. And Frank and I are friendly, but we've never really been close. And, but I play this show. And the reason I bring it up is because somewhere in the show, uh, the worst smelling person I have ever been near 
started to play songs. Uh, and, 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 and it was Johnny Hobo and the freight train. And, and I was like, wow, that's, that's multiple senses at once. Uh, and we talked after the show and he was like, I gave him the reflecting skin CD, which had just come out like two weeks prior. And he gave me the, the Johnny Hobo Mantis split. And I already knew Mantis from when he lived in New York. And he was like, listen to my music or don't. I don't give a fuck. My music is whatever. But you need to listen to my brother. And he gave me Mike's first album. Mike was 15 and had just made Cash Money, etc. And it wasn't even out on Planet X yet. Uh, he just, it was like a CDR of Mike's first album. And um, I thought nothing of it. I thought all anybody else at that show would have been in my life after that day. And then three months later, we saw each other at the last Planet X Fest, uh, the 2006 Planet X Fest. And we played a park show together. And, and uh, it turned out that Pat and Michael had been listening to very little besides the reflecting skin for that subsequent three months. So Pat brought me up to play in Vermont. This all happened because Pepe told me to call Tom Frampton. And I called Tom, which in the time I normally wouldn't have called Tom Frampton either. And in that same six months, uh, I was invited to play uh, with Paul Barabo and Ginger Alford on the Bruce Springsteen tour. And I just didn't make the call in Jersey. I just didn't call. And I like was like, oh, what about that show? And they're like, that was like a week ago. And I just like fucking didn't call him. And that stuff happened all the time. But I made this one call and then Pat and I are fast friends. I went on the Johnny Hobo tour. You know, I knew Pepe could set up a show. And then I emailed him about a show on my spring 2007 tour in Connecticut. And he... Maybe he responded and then just dropped off. I, it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen because of non-response on Pepe's part. And I don't remember why. Um, I was mad. And maybe I was right to be mad. I, I was, it's all strange now. It's, it would be strange to still be holding a grudge today. And lots of other people have bailed on shows. When you've been touring for 20 years, lots of people bail. And that's just the what happens. Like, and friendships change and things evolve. And you meet somebody else and somebody else, you know, steps in and picks up the slack as long as you're, you're living right and taking care of, taking care of relationships. Um, and a year later, we're going through on the Wingnut Dishwashers tour. And I already, like, didn't didn't care. I was like, whatever, you know, it's like, I got to play shows. It's fine. You know, and we pull up and, and I'm a little skeptical leading up to this show because I'm like, this guy kind of bailed and I didn't really like want to make nice about it. I just wanted to like get through the show and whatever. And we pull up and he, he's like, for, you know, from the very get, he's like, hey, I'm really sorry about last year. I'm, we're going to make it up to you. Trust me. And then I don't remember anything about the show. Uh, oh, no, I do. It was a secret show. Because the the venue they had for shows got shut down. And it was like, if you... If we catch you having a show, there's going to be serious repercussions. And I think about that stuff all the time when the local principalities are like, if you have folk punk on these premises, you know, that's going to be a federal offense. And it's just like, bro, like, you know, you want kids. I don't know what you want kids to do. Um, so we had this weird secret show where you had to meet at an address and then walk really deep, far down this river, and then hand on that river bank, and it was it was really charming. And then the the cake, uh, we went back to Pepe's house, 
and that's where we stayed and we ate dinner. And again, I'm like, I, you know, I'm fine with this guy. I'm not really stoked on having to hang out, but whatever. And, uh, he bakes this cake and then frosts it. And then in frosting writes, and he's, we're having a conversation the whole time he's doing this while we're having this conversation. He writes, he puts his cake in front of me and it says, sorry, I fucked you in, in, um, in, in like frosting letters. And, um, and like, and he, you know, and so I'm like, if I wasn't mad about it before, I'm really not mad about it now. Like I'm really not upset because like people have bailed on shows, but nobody's made me a cake. In, in the aftermath to apologize <laughs> for failing on the show. So we have dinner. Oh, that's amazing. We have dinner and then uh, and then they're like, there's this abandoned factory across the street if you guys want to go wander around in there. And and I was like, we were all like, yeah, and I've never done anything like that where we're just like, you know, just seeing what's in there. And it was like artist lofts and they'd been evicted. And and so they'd been evicted like in the night. So it was locked up and patrolled and you couldn't get your shit, you know. So all people's shit was still in there. And and we went through and we're just wandering around looking at all this weird shit. And and as we go in, my clearest memory about this, I was smoking a lot of pot at the time. And as we go in, Patrick was like, do you have any pot on you? And I was like, yeah, I was going to get stoned in here. And he was like, get it out of here because we could get in a lot of trouble. We can get in a lot of trouble because we're doing something illegal. Get the pot out of here. And this was like, we were both still very much, he and I were both still very much in our cups at that time. And, and I was like, oh man, party pooper. So I go out and I throw my fucking pot outside. And I we go and we go back inside, and 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 I just remember wandering around in the dark and all this weird shit that like I don't know what happened to any of it. Hopefully, some people broke broke in and stole their shit back. Hopefully, some people it didn't go to auction. It probably got bulldozed, and it's probably luxury housing now. And then the addendum to that story is you know six years later, we're both. We're both sober. Um, I'm just getting the idea that I'm going to start touring again. And one of the things that kept me alive in those years was um, kept me alive as a musician in those years was um, Ramshackle Glory came to New York three times. And every time they came to New York, they called me to put on the show. They called me to set it up. And those were like, three spectacularly weird shows um, that, you know, I was not selling out crowds. Uh, I'm not selling, selling out crowds today, but I was not selling out crowds at the time. And I played these couple of big shows and Pat uh, solo in that last year came and played, I think like three shows, three or maybe four shows with me too. And those big shows were enough to buoy me to like go, Oh, right. Like there is going to be a a life, you know, in music for me, I'm going to find it. And, and he, uh, and I, I don't know if it was just, I don't know if he listens to that. I doubt he listens to this, to these podcasts, but, I don't know if he was like trying to amend his own behavior when we were drunk by putting me on those shows or, or if he just wanted to play with his home, with his homie, you know? Uh, But either way, like that kept me motivated to like get ready to go out there and do it again. And, and that last tour we did together, same thing. Like it kept me, motivated to to want to to want to do it again playing once in a while to big crowds um but like one time it was the first time the reason i bring all this up is it was the first time i met chesky 
we played Pat and Chesky and I played together here in New York. And the phone call about that show was hilarious because they were like, do you want to open for Pat the Bunny and this guy Chesky, who's a rapper who plays acoustic guitar? And I was like, well, I want to play with Pat, but I don't want to play with a, a, an acoustic guitar playing rapper. And they were like, <laughs> and they were like, okay, just play with Pat then, weirdo. And, and of course I, of course I met Chesky and not only is he the sweetest guy you've ever met and like the most, the most down fucking guy, that's somebody I would love to tour with. Cause I bet that shit's mad fun, but he's also mm-hmm. the best, the best rapper I've ever known. And also the best acoustic guitar player I've ever met. Like he's the best at both of those things. Mm-hmm. It's like not fair. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we played this show and Pat and Pepe stayed at my house and uh, we walked to, there's a white castle near me and we walked to the white castle and I'm carrying this, this metal water bottle uh, with just some water in it up to Cobb Avenue. And the three of us are walking and, and this guy, this car pulls up and this guy goes, leans out the window and goes, Hey, come here. And I, and I'm like, no, you know, this giant guy, I don't know. And he goes, I said, get over here. And I said, I, if, if you need to talk to me, you can talk to me from there. And he said, he points and he goes, what's in that bottle? And I was like, when, when he pointed, I saw the badge. He was an undercover cop. Mm. And, mm. and you just like, I just thought some guy was just trying to fuck with me. But mm. he's like doing his job, like a do, quote unquote doing his job. And, and I was like, it's a fucking water bottle. And then he like, I saw his face kind of fall and he drove away. And after he drove away, Patrick was like, did you just cuss at that cop to like impress us? Because that was not cool. And I was like, no, I didn't know it was a cop until I saw the badge. I thought he was just being a dick. And, uh, and like, I don't know about you, but like, since, since my life has changed in 2010, as far as cops go, I'm just like, absolutely the fuck not. You know, if like, if there's like, someone tries to strike something up with me. I'm like, I'm like one word, two word. No, no, no. Goodbye. You know, cause I know I'm not breaking any laws and somebody's just trying to be an asshole. And, mm-hmm. and so that's just, that's the addendum to that story for me is that's twice. I freaked Pat out about the cops that I even know about. It's probably way many more, but we weren't, none of us were doing anything or holding anything. And it was like, just this funny, just this funny, like, it's funny couple of exchanges. <laughs> but that's the cake story, the cake in the factory story. Or warehouse story. Uh that's great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's awesome to hear you. those stories. Appreciate you. Totally. Um Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on, Brooke. When when can we uh when will your album be, be repressed? Uh, I just got the email that they're ready to send. And so they should be sending. I'm hoping they're here in time for my fall tour, um, which starts on September 12th. And they might not be here, but uh, I'm hoping by then. And in the meantime, I've got, you know, glad to be alive is you know still great and i'm working on a follow-up record of sorts which is me re-recording old songs and unreleased songs Mm. and that record is called taylor's version i'm making that by myself at my house and i hope that's going to come out next year so there is a new old record coming and the reflecting skin is funny because it's like it's 17 years old this year and it, mm. it, 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 I spent a lot of time with it, which I don't spend a lot of time with records of mine. I, I, mm. I, it's not like I never listen to them again, but I, I have to be in a certain mood 
and I, it's a little bit like an Ouroboros, you know, like where I'm chasing my own tail, trying to, trying to listen intently to my own stuff over and over. So I do it sparingly, but I do really like that record. My new, my new record is always my favorite, but that, that was like my first favorite record. That was like my, mm. my, my first, like we got it all right on that one. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a great record. Thank you. Appreciate that. And then. I hope the next, you know, I I hope the next stuff comes together in satisfying ways. And I'm just kind of like trying to let, let spirit lead me in the right directions, you know, in the right direction as that stuff comes to light. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Is the best place for people to find your um, physical music band camp? Yeah. Band camp for physical stuff. And then everything's, Everything's on Spotify. I I would love to be one of those acts that has like you know thirty thousand Spotify followers. Uh, I'm I'm like trying to figure out how to trick the algorithm, but maybe if just if everybody listens to my record, you know, uh, it'll the algorithm will trick itself. Or uh, add Brooke Pride more to your playlists. Yes, please. Um, and also. I love being on podcasts, so the, call me to be on your podcast. I'm a good interview. Um, Absolutely. That, that's it. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you, Brooke. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks so much, Will. I'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Back on the Grind. I know I really enjoyed talking with Brooke and hearing some stories and perspectives I hadn't heard from them before. If you would like to sign up for our Patreon and listen to the full unedited version, you can do that. We have some other bonus content too. We'll also send you a free patch if you sign up. And if you are enjoying this podcast and would like to leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Music, that is always super helpful. And if you have questions or want to give ideas for episodes or comments or anything like that, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at backonthegrindrecords.com. Also, be on the lookout for the launch of Bandit Coffee Roasters, Pepe's new coffee company. We'll see you soon.